Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Retain, renew or demolish. Brought to you in association with British Land. Great. All right, well, thanks a lot for joining our stage. Um, We're talking about retain, renew or demolish. This is a photo from 15 years ago and this man here is asking just that question then. And we're still talking about the same debate. So um, I'll let my fellow... uh, um, uh, presenters introduce themselves. I'm Mark Tillett, sorry, from Hain Tillett Steel. We're structural and civil engineers. Thanks, Mark. I'm Rob McNichol, Assistant Director of Policy and Strategy at the City of London Corporation, and I'm here because we've developed recently our uh, carbon options guidance uh, to help shape how development can consider different options uh, in carbon terms. And thank you, Rob and Mark. My name is Mina Hasman. I'm the head of sustainability at Skidmore, Owings & Merrill. We're an international global practice of architects, structural engineers, and engineers of any kind, urban planners, interior designers. And we're very excited to be here to talk about this very important topic today. Great. Thanks, Mina and Rob. OK, so I'm going to do a, a few slides, and then Mina, and then Rob, and then we're going to have a few questions. So um, really, this is a debate about whether to retain or rebuild. And I think uh, you can't see here, but it's uh, in the background is an image of um, uh, the first industrial revolution. And as, as engineers, we're kind of super excited about the opportunity this gives us. This is the second coming of engineering for us to actually right the wrongs of that first industrial revolution. Um, as we all know, we have a massive impact on the environment. Uh, every, every job most people do here has a disproportionate impact compared to most of the stuff your friends do. So we've got this responsibility to society, um, but who is the judge of what's sustainable and who is the judge of what's retainable? And this is the big question I think I want us to debate and thrash through today. So ultimately it's down to the planning authorities. There's no real government guidance or regulation but the planning authorities respond um, to our opinions, our judgments uh, on a building's future. And we base that on the rigor of our research, our facts, the information presented by us as consultants. But how do we ensure that that's transparent across the industry, consistent, experienced, and fair? And I think you know we're all great at propaganda in here generally. Architects, consultants, developers, we're all trying to sell what we think is the right thing to do. So we need to make sure the right people are on board with the right mindset from the outset to make that happen. So, led by science. Okay, so um, uh, HGS and myself, we've been adapting buildings for 30 years, and refurbishment up until quite recently was the ugly duckling. People really wanted to do new build, um, uh, and it's now obviously been thrust to the fore, and it needs a lot of experience because you're quite often dealing with structures which are up to 150 years old, So it's a very specialist area that requires a very specialist skill set. You need to have the right team on board from the outset. So an architect with the right vision. And you kind of need um, a frugal attitude, I think, and a kind of wear it out and repair it attitude uh, as as a mindset to approaching a project. If you've been doing new build for 30 years and suddenly go into refurbishment, um, you may not have that mindset. And it's then how you actually put the story together of the building and what you want to create, um, which is kind of guided by those first principles. So reuse is nothing new. Um, this is, I was in an M&S debate a couple of weeks ago. I used these as images of very successful Oxford Street refurbishments. 
These are from over 20 years ago. This is Urban Outfitters and this is Primark. Just remodeling um, you know, what are now nearly 100-year-old buildings on Oxford Street. Um, uh, and this, this was, you know, the M&S is hugely debated. Very few people know the facts. And it's quite right that we shouldn't cast judgment until you do know the facts. It happens to be three framed buildings, the M&S site. It's kind of infinitely adaptable and refurbishable. So um, it's really important that we don't muddy the water. We base all of our opinions on facts, uh, and each building is considered on a case-by-case -case basis. So how do we do that? Right, we need to put down the pens and reset the design process. So we need full research. We need archive drawings. Every job we work on, we find archive drawings. You just need to try harder and be relentless, okay? You build your model, you do investigations. And only when you've drawn up the full bones of the structure should you start to begin to unpick it and find where you can work with the grain of the structure and where you can push and pull it. And in, with, the, with the best teams, the best architects, the best collaborative engineers, you know, that's a really enjoyable process. And it actually results in a much more harmonious building, I think, something which works with the best of the old and the best of the new. Um, and uh, there, there's lots of examples we'll come on to in a minute. One really important thing is that this process continues in real time throughout. So most good clients want to do the right thing, but they need all the information from the design team to make those key decisions. So every time you propose something new, you need to talk about the real carbon impact of that proposal so they can make that informed choice. So a change of order is required. We shouldn't be sketching and vision and then retrospectively making it work. Understand what you're doing and pick the right team. Um, and it's not just about carbon. You know, there are loads of other benefits of retention. Um, you bring the building back to market quicker. The surrounding neighborhood is less poorly affected. Road safety is better, less trucks. Air quality, and, you know, most of our work's in London. A massive aspect of that is air quality. Uh, pollution, noise, and vibration. And we look at everything. We do temporary works and permanent works. And I'll give a question later um, to my fellow panelists about measuring carbon throughout a building's life. Incredibly important. You know, facade retention. This project here used more uh, steel tonnage in its facade retention than carbon tonnage than the final structure on the inside. So we need to challenge kind of construction norms and really look at the overall impact. So what refurbishment looked like? Um, the first probably 10 years of my career, it was all steel frame refurbishment. And um, these are all interwar buildings built between 1919 and 1939. Um, where everything really commercially built was a steel frame. And um, what you find is that um, buildings, if you look at history, buildings tend to have a 50 to 60 year life before they undergo a significant transformation. Right? And steel frame buildings have specific advantages. You can add load easily, you can trim out floors easily, you can strengthen them easily. They normally have less capacity for additional load, they perform worse dynamically, and they're worse in fire. So there are pros and cons, and you need to know the um, intricacies of your building to really make a proper carbon assessment. The M&S site has a concrete frame and two steel frames. So it's, um, it, it, it has, has both, both issues there. Roll forward kind of um, 10 years or so, and most of the stuff we've been working on has been RC frames. So everything built pretty much after the Second World War from a commercial perspective, up until the 80s, tended to be a reinforced concrete structure, right? And these have had their 50, 60-year design life, so in 2010, they started the major refurbishments. These two 
have their pros and cons. Concrete is an amazing material. Lots of conversations about concrete today. There's pretty much, a concrete building can pretty much become anything it wants to be. It can be a hotel, it can be residential, be retail, uh, it can be office. Steel frames are much more limiting, okay? Uh, that's all about dynamic performance, fire performance, acoustic performance. So one thing that's not being spoken about here is designing for adaptability, incredibly important. Because the example, successful examples of buildings I'm going to show you here are all ones which had inbuilt adaptability. And that's what we need to do when we're refurbishing a new building now looking forward. Concrete frames, great in fire. You can add lots of additional floors. They're harder to strengthen, but it's all infinitely possible. Okay? And lastly, lots of 90s buildings, you know, only been there for 30 years, the life of a double glazed unit that we're already doing significant refurbishments on because they were just poorly designed originally, right? So quality of architecture, quality of space, really important. Um, and something we really believe in, um, a, a lifetime achievement award for buildings. Forget your awards at practical completion. The true test of a building is 30, 60 years after it was finished. How well has it been tenanted? How well did it adapt? Um, and how many times can you recycle that building? We're changing tenants and uses faster than ever before. So, you know, take um, uh, kind of inspiration from the Victorians. We should be looking at a 200-year lifespan on buildings. So, um, just a few examples. And, um, you know, we talk about retention or new build. It's never retention or new build. We never keep all of an existing building. We keep elements of it. You know, this is the IBM building um, on the South Bank, 76 Upper Ground. This is from last week. You know, heroic scenes. You can do amazing things with refurbishment, right? This is Platoon 2, right here, okay? 68% retained of the structure here. Over 50% of the embodied carbon in most buildings is below ground floor level, okay? So even if you have to recall a building, even if you have to take elements out, you can still have an amazing carbon story. You just need all of that research done at the outset, right at the very beginning. So you need a passion for history and a passion for the evolution of sites. This is the Hickman, okay, the first building, that's an RC frame. This is an interwar steel frame uh, near Whitechapel. We did a huge amount to this, but retained 51% of the structure. This is Woolgate Exchange, a 90s building, right? This is a steel frame in Ribdeck. All of these are very different structures on piled foundations. 95% retained. Okay, and this is Technique. This is a timber framed extension on an RC frame, 69% retained. This is an aerial view of 60 London Wall, unfortunately another 90s building, which is just a very poor original design, 50% retained of this structure. And all of these, we reuse foundations, so there's nothing in an existing building that you can't reuse, okay? If your engineer is telling you you can't, you've gone to the wrong engineer. 160 Old Street, 75% retained, this is a 70s RC frame. The Standard Hotel you'll know, opposite King's Cross, incredibly successful building. So there are 200 bids for this building, and I think we were one of three bids who wanted to keep the building, keep the structure. Earlier on this stage, um, Tim Gledstone was talking about Space House, which is a Seafoot-designed uh, structure. This is the same, really smart structure, load-bearing facade, and then a cantilever tie back at first floor level. 94% retained on this structure. Absolutely, and, and the historic structure has become the icon of the building. If it had been knocked down in a new build, it wouldn't have character. Uh, Gilbert and One, this is on Finchbury Square, a huge building, 90% retained. That's a 1930s building again. This is opposite the Ritz, this is the Barclay Estate, uh, which is a whole block, 69% retained, RC frame structure. So you kind of see where I'm going. It's never 100% retained. You keep as much as you can, you make a brilliant building. 
but you need to be kind of informed by the data and the facts. So the actual um, uh, the proceeds to this, the, the speaker's notes I just read, were about how you turn a 12-storey building into a 32-storey building. Uh, but luckily, well, not exactly that. Uh, can you refurbish a 25-storey building? Or something like that. But luckily, we have done this. And it's just to kind of demonstrate that there's, there's no structure that can't be retained. This is a 12-storey um, a, a building in Fenchurch Street um, that we had to turn into a 32-storey building. We turned it from an office into student accommodation. And um, we ended up doing it on stilts, because really that massive load, you can strengthen it. And I've, all those jobs you saw earlier, we're strengthening all the columns. It's relatively cheap. We test every column for 400 quid. It costs four grand to strengthen them, so it makes sense. This was an RC frame. So we looked at the plan, had to think about it. And when you look at the grid, it's one bay from edge to edge. So we ended up introducing stilts on the outside, which marry up with the historic columns and actually provide a much better fixing um, uh, strata for the new facade as well. So the whole thing basically sticks on stilts, go down the side onto new foundations. So, um, you know, there's nothing that's not retainable and there are really no limits to how far you can adapt a retained structure. I think, but most buildings aren't that kind of high in the sky, pie in the sky. Most retention schemes are relatively low level. And I think because of that, most of, you know, a lot of the buildings which have been demolished over the years, it's not seen as such an impact when it's more of a ground scraper. But ground scrapers have huge embodied carbon. So with that, I'll pass over to Mina. Thank you, Mark. Um, it's great to follow on your, especially on this particular study, which I'm going to uh, push it, I guess, to another limit now. But, um, but great to be here, as I mentioned before. And, um, and I would like to talk about the future of the old uh, and emphasize the importance of setting the context by saying that the opportunity to really redevelop an existing site presents a shift in the attitude, as Mark has, uh, has also alluded to in the way that we assess the value and the legacy. And I, I want to emphasize those two words really carefully, the value and the legacy of the existing built environment. The future of the old perhaps has a new emphasis in our time now, because more than 60% of the buildings we will occupy by 2050 globally already exist today. And this is the reality for more than 80% of the buildings in the UK and in Europe. So in this context, how can we really make the most of what already exists today either in the form of retention or disassembly and repurpose before considering demolition, which may be the inevitable outcome for some. And this is really to encourage circularity, um, minimize greenhouse gas emissions, and promote social equ equity while also contributing to a growing net zero global economy. And how can we really implement a rigorous process that also Mark touched upon, this sort of holistic and rigorous design and evaluation process against multiple criteria, so that our design decisions can yield to long-term and wider benefits for the generations to come? These are the questions we're really faced with today, at this very pivotal time where all the industries known conventions, norms, and best practices are being challenged, layered against a multitude of criteria and also the notion of historic and, uh, and sort of social values, namely the legacy of the existing built environment within our communities. That's an important aspect we should not be forgetting about. And I think in this rather complex environment we find ourselves today, further challenges surface as key stakeholders also continuously pull the projects to different directions in order to address their own priorities and often doing that in isolation. 
and where also existing assets, another added layer of challenge, is that existing assets really have unique constraints and limitations that require innovative and quite creative interventions to give them a new life, a new purpose. So one size does not and will not fit all when we make decisions on an existing asset's future. And in this shifting landscape, what good looks like is also being redefined against a multitude of criteria, as I mentioned before. From a value uplift to longevity to energy and, and sort of carbon reduction, as well as social implications um, against the default driving factors of cost and, and, and regulations and planning requirements. So cost, potentially the single criteria where we have long associated value with, has in the recent years been evaluated on an asset's environmental social governance credentials, where an increase of up to 25% is observed in capital investments for properties with high ESG performance. And that looks at it holistically, beyond just the carbon measure. As value gains new meaning, I would say, when competing priorities are all considered at once, and also the demand for justification of demolishing an existing building rises, our sphere of engagement across the sector, and I would say even sectors, will need to continuously expand, which will define new forms of, uh, and methods of collaboration, as well as the evolution of our work at all scales across the entire built environment sector. We will simply need to um, really venture more into what I call the gray zone, uh, found between what is often considered black and white spectrum of retrofit and new build. It's really not that simple to make the justification or the decision on just retrofit or new build. There is a lot of in-between explorations that need to take place. And this will require the overall decision-making process in all of the built environment projects to be treated as a journey rather than as a sudden arrival to a conclusion so that any unintended consequence that may arise from uninformed decisions can be really prevented. And the feasibility study that I wanted to briefly walk you through today that we've done on a 50-year-old, 25-story commercial building, uh, which was published in the building magazine last year, really presents this holistic process and, and picture that I'm talking about. And it really demonstrates the viability that the varying degrees of intervention an existing asset can have. The aim of this study was to understand through data, both in terms of qualitative and quanti quantitative measures, uh, how this existing asset's value can be increased. And I'm emphasizing the word value here again. How do we define that value is really important. And also, how can we extend the life of this existing asset? And our journey in this project started with the critical evaluation whether this existing asset needed a light touch or a deep retrofit in the first instance. But because of its age, it's, it was beyond 50 years, um, the building was sitting at critical replacement cycle. And therefore, we evaluated the feasibility, the maximum potential this existing asset could offer with a deep retrofit approach. And in this holistic evaluation process, we considered the following core priorities, which, was, which were collectively defined by all the key stakeholders that were going to make the fundamental decisions throughout the evolution of the project. Daylight access, operational energy savings, embodied carbon reduction, upfront cost implications, and area uplift potential, which was critical from our client's perspective. And I, I mentioned this uh, for confidentiality reasons. I cannot really tell about this project, but this is actually based on a real commercial property in London. 
And we also wanted to understand how we can introduce new amenities into this building in this process, which was a critical criteria for the commercial viability of the building. The existing building did not offer any uh, amenity spaces. So the first deep retrofit scenario proved to demonstrate positive outcomes against the majority of the key priorities we had collectively identified. In the second option, where we looked at maximizing the existing building's structural capacity in its full potential, with the understanding that many buildings that were built a few decades ago have overloaded structures. And this scenario provided an opportunity to increase the floor area of the building by adding 10 new floors to it, which the existing structure could already support. And in the third scenario, the key priority was to significantly increase the overall floor area on site, as well as introduce new amenities throughout the building, still delivering this without demolishing the existing structure. And in this option, 30 new floors could be introduced to the project, increasing the existing commercial space area by nearly three times compared to the baseline. And these new floors will be supported by a new structure which would wrap around the existing building. And the last option we looked at was to do an entirely new build scenario with the aim to predominantly compare it to the previous overbuilt one, which could offer the same amount of area uplift and also the amenity spaces, which were very critical to the client from a commercial viability perspective. And as we studied the gray zone that I emphasized before, between the retrofit and the new build spectrum and against a multitude of criteria, we confirmed once more that it's so critical to embrace this holistic evaluation process and approach which is core to the success as well as, a, as well as the evolution of the industry. Because if we, if we look at one priority in isolation, such as upfront embodied carbon, the deep retrofit would show the best performance among all. But when we look at the daylight access on the other end in, into the building, and maximizing daylight access, for example, the new build would prevail. So I would conclude to saying that existing assets once more vary in size and complexity, resulting in a very wide variety of potential future lives and purposes that must be defined beyond a single parameter such as cost, cost or carbon trade-off. It is given that these must be a priority, but the concluding factors will inevitably lie at the unpacking of the meaning of value for each and unique context in order to justify the choice made for the future of the old. Thank you. Sorry, just before um, Rob starts speaking, can you um, send any questions to hashtag FP23? If you scan that, that's it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Mark, and thanks, Mina. So, yeah, so... Uh, I just want to say a few words about what we've developed in terms of our climate, uh, in terms of our uh, carbon options uh, guidance. So back in 2021, we, the City of London Corporation, uh, adopted a climate action strategy, committing ourselves to make a, a net zero square mile by 2040. And we've heard that a lot of developers are already looking at climate op carbon options when they're thinking about their schemes. They're asking these questions of themselves. Uh, whether, to re whether to rebuild, whether to demolish, what the right approach is. But not all developments, developers are doing that. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we were at the forefront of doing this and getting the, very, the, the, the most sustainable development we could for the City of London. Our politicians were at the forefront of this. They said to us, we want to know when schemes are coming through the planning system, 
whether or not it's the right decision to be demolishing buildings, to be retaining them in part, what's the best, what's the op uh, optimal outcome that we get from that. But there's a real challenge. Uh, the planning system uh, happens at a pretty early stage, and certainly the pre-application stage is when you're making those decisions about what you're going to retain on site. That's perhaps the most fundamental decision about any scheme. But you simply don't have the level of detail, the level of data that you need in order to make really robust uh, carbon calculations. So uh, what did we do about this? Well, we had various other objectives as well. We wanted to make sure that we were contributing to net zero, obviously, that we were making sure that developers were genuinely looking at uh, uh, considering different refurbishment options. We wanted to promote best practice and make that kind of standardized right across the industry. And we wanted to offer constructive guidance to applicants uh, as they were developing their schemes. So we employed Hilsa Moran, who I can't speak highly of enough, uh, to develop some guidance with us, coming up with this consistent methodology uh, and data sets to help to estimate the amount of whole life carbon you get for different schemes. It's a real uh, involved process. It involves developers coming to us at an early stage, at that pre-app stage, scoping out different options, uh, and then putting the numbers uh, through a, 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 a set methodology that's going to come up with some robust figures. So we can compare across different options for a site in a consistent methodology. And this is the sort of thing you get out of it. Now, this is what we present to our members at planning committee. Uh, but actually, there's an awful lot of work that goes into all of this and that feeds into the schemes that come through the system. It's that process, that pre-application process, that's absolutely vital to all of this. It's not, it's not just having the guidance document. And we've had some really positive outcomes coming out of this. Major schemes in the city, I'd say every single major application we're getting at the moment is going through this process and embracing it. Uh, we've got a process here that we can use as the foundation uh, for a new retrofit first policy in our city plan. And we're actively promoting this approach to colleagues in other London boroughs, to uh, our GLA counterparts, and speaking to uh, the government about it as well. Anyway, that's it from me. Many thanks for listening. Right, OK. So um, according to this, there are no questions on Slido yet. So get asking, please, while I um, do some prearranged questions with my colleagues here. Um, right. So, uh, first question I'm going to give to Rob. Um, how do you give the planning review process uh, the rigour of a full design team feasibility? And really, I kind of, y you've done this great piece of work with Hilsa Moran, but how on every application can you scrutinise the, the degree to which they've investigated the options? So we're really lucky at the city. We've got a dedicated team of three sustainability professionals who work part-time on developing policy. They've developed this piece of guidance with me uh, and who also work with developers looking at their schemes as they're coming through the system. We're also quite fortunate that most of our uh, developers in the city have got pretty deep pockets. They're able to afford the consultants to uh, do the technical work on their side. We're not there to recreate that detailed technical exercise. We're there to help them scope out what the different options are, to robustly test that, and to make sure that we're comfortable with it before it's get, it you know, turns into the final scheme, which is then goes through the planning system and is presented to members at the end of the day. But it's, it's that 
that rigorous process. We have various pre-application meetings. It's right from the start of the pre-application process. It's not something you leave to the end, which is uh, historically what sustainability considerations have been. You know, you design the building, now we figure out how to optimize its performance. No, if the question's what can we demolish on the site, that has to be the first question that you're asking as part of that process. And we take it through uh, various rounds of, uh, of pre-application engagement and working very closely with the developers uh, who, who are developing the schemes. And broadly speaking, I'd say it's been, it's been embraced, it's been welcomed by the development industry who are developing I, things in London. I guess the cynic would say, you, you know, there's a big element of trust there because you're responding to the information put before you, aren't you? You know, you're responding to their vision of the future of the building and also their vision of how the building is put together and the history of the building. Do, do you think that process needs more scrutiny going forward? I'd say, look, the, the uh, development world, the planning world, always has to have an element of trust. You have to be able to believe that your developers are there trying to do the right thing, trying to, trying to produce good buildings and good developments. And by and large, I'd say they absolutely are. We have introduced a third-party verification process as part of this, just to be absolutely clear that this is something that you do need to take very seriously and it will be rigorously tested. But we've heard that you know, this is something that's increasingly becoming part of the considerations that so many developers and landowners are putting into their processes already. We're just making sure that it's happening, but it's happening already, and I've, I'd really like our piece of guidance to become obsolete in the next couple of years, because it's just standard practice. If I may just add, I think it's true that there's definitely an emerging demand for sort of having a much more technical rigor in the evaluation process of the planning applications or in general, any, anything that is being designed and proposed in many parts around the city, but especially it's in the city of London because it's such a prime location. And a lot of the developers are actually hiring various different consultants. And I speak from firsthand experience, even like us as SOM, as peer reviewers. You know, even if there is a, even they may have appointed someone who's a, who has the sort of the technical capabilities and experience and expertise to evaluate perhaps uh, a scheme uh, in detail, they still want to get a second opinion to ensure that the process has been followed rigorously as has been set as a guidelines by the City of London. Okay, thanks. So um, before we come to the uh, audience questions, is the only true outcome to really measure carbon on buildings in the future a carbon tax? So you record everything that happens to a building over its life every fit out that happens, because at the moment all of these are based on assumed projections, the whole life carbon. But really if we changed everything around and you measure every, every eventuality, every action that happens to that building over its life, and there's a penalty for it, if you've, if you've designed a building and it's all the toilets or lifts have been ripped out after two or three years, which would go under the planning radar but still have a huge carbon impact, surely that's, that's the only way to really get the true carbon value of structure and actually for developers to build in adaptability and th forward thought into a scheme which doesn't currently have any value at the point of sale. I think if I can just take that on, Mark, that's a great observation because it's so important to build that accountability throughout the life of the building. I think often in the industry sort of current 
operation, operating sort of mindset is that we sort of stop as soon as the building is constructed, renovated, whatever it may be, that is handed over to end users, then our resp we, we sort of wipe our hands clean and our responsibility ends there. But I think the responsibility definitely needs to continue and be passed on to others. And most of the developers, and I, I speak sort of humbly on behalf of the developers here, but most of the developers may not um, want to uh, sort of carry that responsibility moving forward because they are most important, they're, they're mostly sort of concerned about the viability of that asset today within the shorter time frame. But I think they need, there needs to be some sort of a mechanism in place, and I don't know if this comes from planning and other sort of government authorities to ensure that there is this accountability built throughout the life of the building. Because as you're rightfully saying, if we are only uh, doing best for what's for that asset for a short term of period of time, then we're actually not really truly engaging in the in the longer term benefit and this sort of longer term resilience and adaptability um, topics that we're really emphasizing here. Great. One more question from, from here and then the crowd. Um, is there a conflict of interest between the climate and the creativity of design teams and the ego of developers? It's a great question. I mean, look, there's always going to be your odd star architect who's determined to build something absolutely iconic. But I think increasingly we're seeing uh, architects coming to us saying, we want to do something really imaginative with this building. We want to uh, f address what the challenge is of adapting it, of, of finding new uses for it, uh, of, of testing out how we can expand it, how we can uh, build extensions to it, whether that's historic structures or even newer ones that are coming on stream. So uh, I'd like to think that um, we can all uh, swallow our egos a little bit and just make this about how we can uh, you know, address the, the big challenge of sustainability that we've got. Okay, uh, so some of the audience questions. And this one came up in the other corner of the room with um, Paul Mollahan and Susie. Um, uh, the question is, why is Resi lagging behind Office in terms of sustainability and retrofit? and what can be done to ensure the sector catches up. So the view from there, and I agree with it, is the commercial office sector is kind of leading sustainability. Um, and I think it's driven by uh, tenant demand, uh, investor requirement for ESG. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe commercial office buildings are simpler. They're generally frame buildings with space inside. So why do we think Resi and also hotel, why is it lagging behind? I think, I mean, I, I'm just going to add on to what you mentioned, Mark, and what the conclusion was. I think the commercial sector is definitely um, at the forefront of sort of putting forward sort of these precedents, that, if we can call them that way, that are setting the ambition farther, just because just because even if other criteria is not considered just because of the um, uh, the investor sort of pressures. And I think that we don't see the same drive and same demand from the residential sector. And that's the reason why the residential sector has been falling behind, in my humble opinion. And I think that also the regulations, the sort of the lack of regulations in that from that perspective is also what's not giving the incentive for the residential developers to really push the agenda further beyond where they need to be. But I think the investment and the ESG criteria has really made the leap within the commercial sector to really push that um, sector forward from a sustainability perspective. Yeah, and in terms of commercial, I mean, we know that we're seeing immense demand for the best-in-class office stock uh, coming forward. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the grade B stock, it's the older buildings that, that um, 
uh, building occupiers are just not interested particularly in taking up. There is some demand, but it's, it's minimal. And in the city, it's that flight to quality. It's people saying, right, we absolutely have to have these really well-performing buildings, both in terms of sustainability, but also the amenities. You know, we, we get a lot of demand for new buildings or, or adapted buildings with roof terraces, where they can really sell that to the people coming into the city of London to work. Uh, this is why you've got to come to the office. This is why you want to come to the office, because you're going to be working somewhere sustainable. You're going to be working somewhere attractive. You're going to be working somewhere where you can do other things as part of that building. And squaring that is a real challenge for us. Okay, here's a great question. Is there a risk that whole life carbon reports become a bit like viability assessments with communities, campaigners not trusting them, e.g. M&S Oxford Street? <laughs> um, yes, short answer, yeah. I mean, the planning system uh, comes up with these great ideas. You know, viability was a great idea uh, when we came up with it, and then it became this whole enormous industry into its own uh, right. It was all very behind closed doors, hush, hush, etc. Uh, London Plan came up with the, the threshold approach, which to some extent solved the problem. But uh, in terms of, uh, this, this is one of the reasons why we've got this third party review is because, I'll be frank, people don't trust the planning system. People don't think that it's, uh, you know, people think that developers can get away with doing things. Um, I think if they saw it from the inside, they'd see that it's, it's actually a much more transparent and rigorous process than that. Uh, but we have got that third party review as part of our processes, and we can see that uh, the vast majority of developers are genuinely committed to thinking really deeply and carefully about the carbon impacts of their buildings. Um, question here, should we ever be doing retention schemes where the resulting whole life carbon assessment per meter squared is higher than a good practice new build option? So almost proactive retention. I think that, that's a great question. It's a challenging one. As I emphasized during the presentation, that it's, it's important um, not to look at carbon as a single. It's an, it's an important priority, but not, it should not be looked at in isolation. Because even in, in some of the examples I've shown as well in the study that we've done, even if carbon may look slightly higher, there may be other sort of elements that are contributing to the viability, to the benefit, to the public benefit, and so forth, of that asset. So retention may, for that reason, may make sense, um, even though the carbon figures may be slightly higher. Or if I can look at it from the other perspective, the new build scenarios on the whole life carbon picture, especially if we look at 100-year life cycles, tend to always have the lower carbon impact. I mean, depending on the size of the building, but tend to have the lower carbon figures. But that shouldn't necessarily be the right justification of why we should just immediately jump to new builds. Because again, it, it's important to have this holistic and multi-criteria review process. Okay, great. So does uh, is, is anyone want to ask a question and can't use Slido? No? Okay. Um, so here's one. Uh, how do we overcome the low floor to ceiling height issue across existing stock, which is usually the biggest factor in decisions to demolish and build new? So I, I can take this as a, a structural engineer. This is normally the problem that comes to us. If they're frame buildings, you can put the surfaces through openings in the beams, be they steel or concrete. Um, but if you have a flat slab building that's very restrained from height to height, um, it's a challenge, you know, and maybe this is where great architecture comes in. Maybe you need to introduce atria. Maybe you need to reduce your uh, lack of light across a big floor plate. But we have looked at options where we actually jack up floors around retained columns. So you detach the slab, you prop it, you detach the slab from its column junction, you jack it up, and then you re-engage it. So it's kind of about creative engineering, but I think 
it's in parallel with this, there's the BCO conference, right? And we all know about the BCO spec, but the reality of a lot of the buildings we work on, especially refurbishment buildings, um, don't comply with the BCO. It's about quality of space. And good architecture is what defines quality of space, not specifications. So I think, um, yeah, I don't know if Mark, you want I just to, wanted yeah. to, I'm glad that you mentioned that way because I think, and I appreciate that it's important to have a higher floor to ceiling height for the well-being and for sort of getting more daylight into existing buildings, but that shouldn't be the only criteria that we look at and that, that shouldn't be the only defining criteria of the quality of architecture. Uh, as you rightfully are noting, the sort of the design and the creative engineering that can be brought into these constrained environments is what is defining how good of an architect or how good of a designer or how good of an engineer we can all be to really define that quality of space. And it doesn't necessarily need to come with the higher end finishes, higher floor to ceiling heights, uh, and name it, you know, many other criteria that by default has been given as the, um, I, I, I guess, as the minimum to define what quality of space is. It shouldn't be defined around those parameters, in my opinion. And, and Rob, I'll put the question to you. If a developer came to you and wanted to justify demolishing a building, on the basis that it has poor floor to ceiling height and that's going to affect their rents, what, what would you say to them? Oh gosh, look, I mean, uh, maybe this is evading the question, but I think you've really got to look at each building on its merits and see what the options are for each scheme. You know, some sites, yeah, you absolutely need to think about whether you can, uh, whether that is a genuine limitation. In some instances, it won't be. There's, an, there's a creative solution to doing that. And we're certainly having those conversations at the early stage when we're doing this optioneering work to say, right, hang on, yeah, you, it's, it's a little bit lower than would be ideal, but surely you can explore other solutions to, to finding that out. So it's, it's, I wouldn't ever want to treat it as a gateway, right, it's whatever, low floor to ceiling, therefore we definitely have to demolish. I mean, that's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about things. Great, okay. Um, what else have we got here? How does the embodied carbon of large-scale build-over schemes compare to full new build? So in our study, which was the one I briefly showed today that published at the Building Magazine article, the overbuild uh, scenario, the third scenario, if you remember, where we added actually 30 floors or studied the feasibility of adding 30 floors to an existing 25-story building, the embodied upfront embodied carbon of that uh, was very comparable to what the new build scenario would be today, despite the fact that we were adding an entirely new independent structure that wraps around the building. So overall, it wasn't, um, it wasn't enough justification. If someone looked at this, even just in that study in isolation, its own merit, um, you could not justify a new build uh, from, uh, from that sort of more complex uh, structural solution that we were offering for the, for the overbuild, because the upfront and body carbon figures were very close to each other. I just want to do a straw poll in the crowd because um, there's two key words we hear a lot of here, embodied carbon and whole life carbon. And embodied carbon, um, assume it's with your existing and proposed development A1 to A5. So all of the embodied carbon at practical completion and then your whole life carbon, which is measured over 60 years. Um, and there's, a, there's an argument that the climate emergency is now, so we should be concentrating on embodied carbon. Okay, the impact right now at practical completion. Not necessarily building in better insulated walls, which are going to have a better final outcome in 60 years. Who in the room thinks uh, embodied carbon A1 to A5 should have more focus than whole life carbon? 
I'll put my thing in the ring. Okay. And just to make sure there are no abstainers, who thinks whole life carbon should dominate? Okay, whole life carbon wins by a nose, I think. But right. Um, what else have we got? Mark, yes. I think on that one, could I just add that I think the importance for, for those of us who have put our hands up for the embodied carbon is because I think it's important to emphasize, and this is perhaps very straightforward, but embodied carbon cannot be rectified throughout the life of the building. Whereas operational carbon can be reduced in the whole life carbon of the building if the energy source and the fuel source is coming from renewable sources. So I think that's the reason why I think some of us are more concerned about ensuring that embodied carbon is addressed today because once that building is, is constructed, the structure especially, is going to be there for 100 years. And if it's not done right, right now, it cannot be rectified later on. I guess the problem is, you look at so many examples of buildings that are knocked down after 30 years, don't you? And it's, um, yeah. Okay, um, one final question, I think. Uh, what have we got? How is the City of London plan given material weight in any determination. How is this balanced against economics and does the committee have the expertise to assess this? Uh, the answer to the final question is yes. Uh, the committee are uh, advised by a fantastic team of very professional planners who give them that expertise and the committee themselves uh, have, have really taken all this on board. Um, how do we balance it all up? Yeah, it's a process we go through. So, you know, you think about the, the whole life carbon of the building as part of, as a first stage, you think about the options, but then you also think about the wider sustainability issues. You know, what are you doing about climate resilience? What are you doing about biodiversity? And then what are you doing about the wider planning benefits? You know, uh, what's the merits of demolishing a scheme or partially demolishing a scheme if it's going to give you substantial uh, economic be benefits or substantial social benefits as well. So that's all factored into that process uh, that we go through as part of uh, pre-applications and as part of considering applications. In terms of balance, the whole life carbon uh, planning advice note, it's just an advice note, it's not even an SPD, uh, but we wanted that flexibility. We wanted something that we could adapt and change uh, over time. We're very fortunate, our developers have really embraced it, are running with it, and are following what we're asking them to do. We're refreshing our city plan, our local plan at the moment, and we're looking at policies that take a retrofit first approach, trying to tilt that balance towards retrofit, away from demolition, but it's only a tilted balance. There may still be, if you've got very strong reasons, there may still be reasons why you'd tilt it back the other way. But that's the policy approach, that's something for the local plan, and we're still developing that, so more on that in the coming year or so. All right, well thank you very much, Robin Mina, and thank you for joining us. That's right.